to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I'm Krista, and today we're going to be covering a subject on this episode that is, again, similar to the uh, Servant Girl Annihilator, kind of a rough subject. So if you have children listening in the car with you, if you're like me and listen to podcasts with your kids, um, this is a skipper, I think, for sure, because it's going to be pretty scary if you're scared by that sort of thing. Or again, if you have kids who are probably going to be scared of this kind of thing, because it is pretty scary. Um, Or if you're just sensitive to it. So this week's episode has quite a bit to do with, um, well, racism in a way. Because the people who were targeted were mixed race, were black and mixed race as well. And since you've already seen it on the podcast episode name... Uh, We're covering the mulatto murders. And for those of you who are not familiar with that terminology, mulatto is a term, or was a term, I'm not sure if it's still in use, uh, was a term to describe people with white and black ancestry. And it's thought to originate from the term mestizo, uh, which would have been Spanish and white or native and white um, ancestry. Being mixed race myself, I'm not in love with the names. And it's just kind of weird thinking about names that people have created for others who are different than themselves. I remember in middle school, I dated a boy who, and dated, I mean, take that with a grain of salt because it was middle school, but I remember him describing me as white chocolate and that I was weird to begin with, but um, that I was Mexican on the inside, but white on the outside. And this guy was already on thin ice with me because he was talking about having kids, not getting married or anything, just having kids. And we were like 13 years old. So he was already on the way out. And the white chocolate thing just kind of did it for me. Uh, I've never been into being compared to food of any kind. And especially not white chocolate because it's not chocolate. It's just gross. So it's just so strange to me, like why we have to create these names to get ourselves more comfortable with someone who's just different, who just has different DNA. It's just such a odd concept. But it is the concept that is at the center of our subjects. So the mulatto murders are another set of murders that took place in the early 1900s. And if you are a listener to my other podcast, you might have already heard this, but since that show is kind of a different tone... Um, I'm going to go ahead and cover it again. And I also found out a little bit more information about the murders that I wanted to share. They occurred from 1911 to 1912. um, And they redeemed the mulatto murders because they largely attacked and targeted the mixed race community as well as the black community. Um, It begins, though, in January of 1911. Edna Apolousas and her three children were found hacked to death with an axe in 1909 in Rain, Louisiana. And police at the time were just baffled as to who would kill a family, but no suspects were found. In February, so just a month later, a police officer in West Crowley, Louisiana, responded to a call from neighbors uh, and found a pretty nasty scene. A woman, a man, and a small boy were lying in a bed just covered in blood with their skulls split open, Um, And they were also decapitated. Bloody footprints were on the floor, and in a corner there was a bucket of blood as well. Uh, Almost as if somebody had tried to clean up the scene a little bit. 
uh, above the bodies, which had been kind of arranged on the bed, was a murder weapon. And it was a, as you can imagine, a bloody axe. And it appeared as though the murderer had snuck in and then snuck back out through an open window since all of the doors had been locked from the inside. The murder weapon being an axe isn't really what made this brutal, even though in our time it absolutely would be. Axes at that time were easily found in nearly every home. They were everyday tools that the killer could easily pick up, use, and then leave as it was usually the family's own axe. And no murder weapon could be found if suspicion did fall on a certain person, so it really wasn't a a weapon that could be linked to anyone. They were also relatively quiet murder weapons. Guns were largely available even in the early 1900s, but they made a racket, so axes and knives were still more popular, and axes were often used in cases of domestic murders. The local newspaper after these murders, called it the most brutal murder in the history of this section. But that would soon be refuted as the slayings only got worse from there. Four weeks after that family was found, and that was the Byers family, four weeks after the Byers' deaths, on February 25th, four members of the Andrews family in Lafayette, Louisiana, were found, quote, brained with an axe and arranged together which I'm not sure why they used that particular word. It makes me think of something zany and not something severe and harsh. But they did. And just like with the Byers family's murders, um, they were arranged together. Almost as if the killer, well, definitely as if the killer wanted you to find them that way. A month after that, in San Antonio, Texas, a teacher at the Grant School for Black Children Lewis and his wife, Elizabeth Cassaway, and their three children were found murdered in their home. This is the first case where we have a mixed race family. Lewis Cassaway was a black man who'd married a white woman and had had a family with her. So this is where we're getting into the, the mixed race murders. At that time, police were looking for a white man because who else would be targeting mixed race families and black families other than a white man? Um, Crime in the areas of the town that the murders occurred in was high, but it usually wasn't brutal like that, and it usually wasn't family-side. It was small crimes and little little things like robberies and stuff like that, and definitely they didn't target African-Americans and mixed-race families, so these definitely stood out. Um, and after chasing a few leads that ultimately led to nothing, police settled on Raymond Barnabet, who was not a white man, um, he was a small-time criminal and sharecropper in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, he was also known to be incredibly aggressive and abusive. And I guess after one of those nights where he was both aggressive and abusive, his mistress um, had gotten really upset. So she was going around the house, around, around the town, dropping hints um, that he might be connected to the murders. So I guess those rumors got around to the police because he was arrested in 1911. During his trial in October, his children, Clementine and Zephyrin, confirmed the murders, saying that their father would come home with blood and brain matter on his shoes, and on top of that, at the time of each murder, he was out of town. While their father was in jail, though, another murder took place. In November of 1911, Mr. and Mrs. Norbert Randall, their three children children and their nephew, were brutally murdered, with one difference. Norbert had been shot in the head. 
obviously the murderer had not been caught. After more murders had taken place, the neighbors of Raymond Barnabas started telling the police that his children, Clementine and Zephyrin, were shifty, filthy degenerates. And on top of that, honestly, when the police came to arrest Raymond, Clementine had blood on her clothes from the Andrews murders. And she claimed that Raymond had wiped that on her to frame her uh, for the murders. And when their home was searched, newspapers wrote that they found a complete suit of women's clothes in her room, saturated with blood and covered in human brains. They also found that the latch to their door was blood spattered. So, yeah, they both, her and her brother, both said their father did it, but chances are, I don't know. They kind of think they all did it. I do feel as though their father had something to do with it, but... Anyway, we'll get to that theory. After the arrest, Zephyrin, Clementine's brother, provided an alibi, but his sister could not. So it was Clementine who was ultimately arrested and blamed for the entirety of the murders. In January 1912, three more families were murdered, the third of which, Felix Broussard, his wife and their three children, were killed in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And this one was more violent than the rest, even though they were all pretty nasty. The killers had spread the victim's hands apart with pieces of wood and left a message written in blood on the wall saying, When he taketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble, signed the human five, which is an interpretation of Psalm 921 in the King King James Bible. So at this point, police were like, yeah, there's a group of murderers at work here, and it's not just Clementine. And they called them the Human Five Gang. They also wrote stories that attributed the ritualistic-seeming murders to voodoo rituals because, I mean, it sounds like that. It really does with that note. At first, I was thinking that maybe it was like the Axeman murders, that they really pushed this voodoo stuff because it was a way to get people kind of in a frenzy. Um, That's just their fear. If there's black people involved at this time, uh, white Louisiana and somewhat Texas were like, Okay, no, it's got to be voodoo. That's the only way that we can explain this happening, why they would do this. Um, But sometimes people are just crazy, and they're involved in occults, and that is where we're going next. On April 5th, 1912, Clementine Barnabit finally confessed to the murders she was currently sitting in prison for. She admitted to 17 murders, all due to the cult that she had joined, the Church of Sacrifice. She said that she and her accomplices were given conjure bags, that would help them evade the authorities and give them supernatural powers. She also claimed that she dressed in men's clothing to slip around unnoticed during the night. And when asked why she killed the children in the families, she said that she didn't want them to be left orphans in the world. During these confessions, she also mentions that uh, Norbert Randall and his family were murdered because they didn't follow instructions given to them by the priestesses in the Church of Sacrifice. And I'm thinking the difference there, if you'll remember, he was shot in the head, Norbert Randall. And I'm thinking that maybe he was awake when she and whomever else, because I don't believe she really did it alone, when she and whomever else broke into that house, I think he was awake and it was just easier to shoot him in the head than to try and hit him. So... People did not totally buy her complete explanation since all of the names of her accomplices really went nowhere and she was very much living up to what she'd done. She admitted to caressing the corpses after she'd killed them, which 
didn't make her any friends and, in fact, got her deemed a moral pervert. And, I mean, I get that. If you're going to be like, yeah, I killed all these families and these children, some as young as six months, in their mother's arms. And, yeah, I caressed them. I felt bad, you know. It's like, no, no. You're going to go to jail. You're going to get convicted because you're just, you're all over the place. Clearly, she wasn't right, honestly. In my head, I'm like, no, something's wrong with this chick. Um, eventually, she confessed to 35 murders. But with her story changing each time she told it, it's hard to be completely sure that some of them just weren't copycat murders that she's taking credit for. She obviously was not in her right mind. And while people knew that, she was imprisoned in a traditional jail anyway. At the age of 19, she was sentenced to life at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. On July 31st, 1913, she tried to escape, but she didn't even make it to the gate before being caught. After 10 years, she received a, quote, procedure um, that was supposed to have completely restored her mental state to function in the world. And then she was released on good behavior. Now, I tried to look up what this was because I have a passing interest in mental institutions and um, some of the services that they offered, especially at this time. And I thought at first that it was a lobotomy that she got, but the lobotomy was not invented until 1935. And the mental health procedures of the time that Clementine would have experienced in prison could have included electroshock therapy, insulin-induced comas, and malaria fever therapy. Given that she wasn't in an actual mental health institution, even though her attorney did argue that she was insane and she should have been in one, she just wasn't put there. So we can't be sure of what procedure she actually received. On the malaria fever therapy, if you were like, what? What is that? Uh, I was too, so I looked it up. In the early 1900s, about 5 to 20% of the patients being treated for dementia and mental health issues were experiencing neurosyphilitic symptoms, and the malarial fever was thought to kill off the affected brain cells while preserving the healthy ones. So that is malarial fever therapy. Obviously, it's no longer in use because <laughs> it probably didn't work. Um, here's the thing, back on the subject of Clementine Barnabit. I'm not sure that she committed all of these murders. Um, she was African-American, and many of the families she killed were African-American or mixed-race families. And since white Louisiana was not at this time known for being the, for, for giving the most honest portrayal of the black community, it's possible that they just whipped up a voodoo priestess frenzy to sell more papers, as I mentioned before. The Church of Sacrifice may never have existed, and if it did, it really didn't go further than Clementine and maybe her whole family. I honestly don't know. I do believe Zephyrin. Uh, who remains completely anonymous after this little scene. Um, I'm not sure that he had nothing to do with it. I feel like he did. And I'm also pretty sure that while Raymond did get off the hook and Clementine took the blame, I'm pretty sure that he did some of that because he had been talking about t around town that he had um, killed the buyer's family and that they deserved it. So I don't know if it was their whole family and then some other people, um, I have no idea. It's left to history. And for those of you who don't know, this is not the only axe murder story in this area. It's not even the only serial axe murder story in the 19-teens and 1920s. The Axe Man of New Orleans was terrorizing the locals of that city. Um, and 
As we know from a few episodes ago, the servant girl annihilator had terrorized Austin about 30 years prior to this. Um, even at the same time, the city of Atlanta, which we might cover the story or, or not, I'm not sure. The city of Atlanta was dealing with the slayings of at least 20 um, African-American and mixed-race women. Um, and that was the Atlanta Ripper. So there is definitely a pattern occurring here. I'm not even sure that the mulatto murders and the Axeman murders aren't really connected in some way because the city is affected by both. We're on the Southern Pacific Rail Line and mixed race families or immigrant families were targeted in both. And to be fair, the killings did not stop when Clementine Barnabit went to jail. In fact, they continued mostly in Texas. 18 more murders of mixed race families had happened in Beaumont, Glidden, and San Antonio. And while police had stopped looking at the religious angle after arresting Clementine, they started looking at the rail line, just like what I'm saying. There was uh, a definite pattern along the rail line. So they ended up being able to predict where the next murder might be. At one point, they predicted that the next murder would be in San Antonio, and they were absolutely correct, but they could do nothing about it. And it's just such a terrifying thought that while we know something's going to happen, all we can do is tell the residents of that town to arm themselves and be careful. And that is something that happened. This was not highly publicized. The murders were not highly publicized in the main newspapers, but they were in the black community. And African-Americans, along with mixed-race families, started guarding their homes and arming themselves. And one such family in Victoria, Texas, was so scared that when a friend came to see how they were doing and tried to open the door to their home, the man inside, Ernest Smothers, shot his friend dead. Now, to be honest, if someone's trying to get in my house and I have no clue who they are, um, they're not announcing themselves, I mean, I get it. And I know a lot of other people who are the same. If you're trying to get in my house and it's at night, late at night, I don't know who you are, I mean, chances are you're probably going to get shot. Probably not through the door because I think there's laws against that now. Maybe because of this. Who knows? Um, but, you know, you're definitely putting your life in danger. Max Warren, a neighbor, after hearing this person get shot, came over to the house and seeing the guy dead on the porch, he ran away screaming. He was like, there goes the axe man. He's going somewhere. And I don't know where he saw any person running because the guy who killed his friend was inside the house. Um, but, yeah, by running away and screaming, there goes the axe man. Other neighbors got up, and since they were already so scared, they ended up shooting him. So, two dead um, due to this hysteria. Now, there was, after this, only one more attack, and it was an attempted murder. Mr. Dashiel woke up to his wife's screams. Her arm was slashed, and pretty much sliced, I guess, because it was an axe, um, by someone who was continually to try, continuing to try and attack her. Because people on the house woke up, the murderer got scared and ran out. And this is the last time that we hear of any attacks of this nature in this area. So that's pretty much the end of the story of the mulatto murders. There's actually not a ton of information on these. They weren't really documented well at the time. Um, Clementine's trial was documented, but that's pretty much it. So what we know is just like minor little stories on the side. Um, 
I wish I could say more, but we are going to be covering more of these types of things. Um, maybe murder mysteries, because again, I really don't think that the buck stops with Clementine. Um, I think when we do cover the Axeman of New Orleans, I think we're going to find that they might be related, or at least they're related through the Church of Sacrifice. Um, next week, I'm not sure what our topic is going to be. I had originally uh, been working on a really, really large topic, but the documentation has run a little short, so we'll see. But you tell me, if you want to hear a story about, I don't know, something scary like a demon, um, I have a lot of those. And we can go into those. Or if you want to hear more true crime, you tell me. Comment on my Instagram. I'll put up a post um, about it. And we will get to getting. Speaking of my Instagram, please follow if you haven't already. And that is at Historical Paranormal. Uh, you can also find our website. the um, Or actually, it's not the. It's just historicalparanormalpodcast.home.blog. That's there too. Come check us out. I do have the show notes, the transcripts that's going to be posted on each episode. Uh, those are going to go live on the website. So if you want to have all this information right smack dab in front of you, that is a great place to go. And of course, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts on that app. Other than that, I'm signing off. I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.